that some see Jesus as the answer to our deepest problems and so have the highest estimation of him, while others just think he's a total irrelevance. As Christians, we obviously care about this. Uh, We want others to start following Jesus and, and try and think of ways that we persuade others. Is it a PR issue? Perhaps what we need to do is get uh, an impressive person who's a Christian to share their story. Maybe if we got a great top golfer like Bubba Watson or, or a cool TV personality like Bear Grylls or maybe get a former Miss Universe beauty queen or the, a top CEO of a large company or maybe the head of the army or a, an Oxford professor to come and share how they're a Christian. Maybe that would persuade people. Maybe we could impress people into becoming Christians. You know, if only they knew about our church, if they only knew about the hundreds of people who come here, and and many are are smart students and professionals, if we could show them that uh, Christians can have fun and be beautiful, happy, shiny people, maybe that's going to win them. Is that how people will become believers? Well, please open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 53. And you'll find that on page 741 in a church Bible. If you don't have a Bible and you'd like one, just put your hand up and uh, maybe some people would bring. Uh, could do with some Bibles just down here. Anyone else would like a Bible? Just put your hand up and they'll bring it to you. Turn to page 741 in the church Bibles. That's Isaiah chapter 53. Keep your hand up and we'll bring a Bible to you. Just going to read. The first three verses of Isaiah 53. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised and we held him in low esteem. This is God's word. Isaiah wrote this message about 700 years before the coming of Jesus. And he is seeking in these chapters to comfort a suffering and broken people. And their suffering and brokenness was because of their own making, really. They turned from God. They put their trust in other things and and sought to live for lesser things. And it ended in catastrophe and shame. And perhaps there's people here today. And in a sense, you can see that your life story mirrors the story of Israel. And I want to encourage you this morning because Isaiah's got a message about how God is going to save them and that that salvation is still something that extends to us today. And it is through this person called the servant. Last week, we began a five-week series looking at this fourth servant song in the book of Isaiah. 
And we considered the summary introduction at the end of of chapter 52 where he presents uh, the heights of the servant's ministry. Raised up, lifted up, highly exalted. The depths of his ministry in the suffering and the breadth of his ministry and how it's going to have an impact uh, on all the nations, sprinkling the nations. And so you see the the message that we've got to preach today it is as relevant as it was for them as it is for us today, living here in Edinburgh in Scotland. As we come to this second paragraph, we see that Isaiah knows that the people will find this message unbelievable. Look back at verse 1. Who has believed our message? There's a paradox here that people are going to struggle to accept and believe. Because this promised servant will be such an unlikely savior. Firstly, note that we are talking about a savior. Verse 1, to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? If you're out of your depth in the sea, you've got no more strength to swim. What you desperately need is the arm of a rescuer to grab you and pull you to safety. Take a look back at Isaiah chapter 52 and verse 10, the chapter immediately before verse 10. The Lord will lay bare his holy arm in the sight of all the nations. And all the ends of the earth will see the salvation of our God. The arm of the Lord is a way of speaking of God in his acts of of salvation. And what it does is it stresses the personal nature of his salvation. He does it by his arm. But this message just appears unbelievable to so many because the arm of the Lord is such an unlikely looking savior. And we get a description here of his beginning and his life. Let's consider the the servant's beginning. Verse 2. He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. Do you ever remark on a small plant pushing out of the ground? Or care about little plants struggling in dry soil? Most of us don't. It's inconsequential, it's fragile. You could easily pull it out and it would die. Well, the mighty arm of the Lord will appear, says Isaiah, as a small and impressive person. What's going to shake the world? A baby born in an obscure part of the Roman Empire to a a teenage peasant girl? Wrapped up, placed in a feeding trough? Someone whose early days were were marked by such fragility as the family had to flee as refugees to Egypt because of a a murderous ruler killing all the, the young babies in Bethlehem. And then for 30 years, growing up in Nazareth, a place that was made fun of. Does anything good come from Nazareth? That this is the mighty arm Of the Lord? Really? It was the sheer orderliness of Jesus that people could not get past. 
As he preached in the hometown synagogue, Mark's gospel says that they were amazed at his teaching and they said this, where did this man get this teaching? What's the wisdom that's been given him? What are these remarkable miracles he's performing? Isn't this the carpenter? He fixed the door of my house. Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and, and the brother of James and Joseph, Judas and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Surely if God is going to come into the world, it should be with a bit more fireworks and bling, a bit more pizzazz. He should look a bit more impressive. The problem with Jesus is that he was just, he just looked so ordinary. He had no Hollywood good looks, verse 2. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. Now, last month, the newspapers were full of the sad news of the divorce of Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie. And it was incredible to read some of the reactions. Vogue magazine pronounced it as the day that love died. Someone from Huffington Post tweeted this. If Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie are actually getting divorced, there's definitely no hope for the rest of us. Now just think what's implicit in that statement. What matters in life and in relationships is to be beautiful, to be handsome, to be talented, to be rich. And if you have all of that and you still can't make your marriage work, well, what's the hope for the rest of us ugly people? When we're so ordinary and average. That's the way the world thinks, isn't it? And so that's why the message of, of Isaiah seems so unbelievable. This servant looks so ordinary, so unattractive. Often in religious artworks, uh, they, when they represent Jesus, he's made to look like a handsome Hollywood star with a shining glory around his head. But it's clearly not what Jesus looked like. There was nothing about the way he looked that made him look remarkable. If you'd seen him in a crowd, your eyes scanned across it, your eyes wouldn't have stopped upon him. Nothing impressive in his appearance that attracted people. Now, this is not the main point of this section, but our society is so horribly distorted about the importance and place of external appearance. We pay far too much attention to how we look on the outside. The magazines are filled with impossibly beautiful people all photoshopped to perfection as if this was the point of human existence. And no wonder then that teenagers and teenage girls in particular are self-harming with eating disorders. There's something really sick in this culture of beauty. Notice with me that when God chose to come into the world as our savior, the remarkable thing is that he chose to look like somebody who was totally unremarkable. So his beginning, unimpressive and ordinary. And secondly, his life, marked by rejection and suffering. Verse 3, he was despised and rejected by mankind. A man of suffering and familiar with pain. To begin with, there was this early promise, this excitement. People started following Jesus. 
But as the time went on, people walked away. People looked at him and considered him worthless. They wrote him off. He didn't look like a winner. He knew the pain of rejection. He was rejected by his own community. Luke's gospel tells us how his hometown uh, once tried to push him out of town and push him off a cliff. Rejected by his own family, who thought at one stage he'd lost his mind. Rejected by the leaders of the nation, who plotted to kill him. Why so much rejection? It tells us something about our hearts. We don't want somebody else to tell us how to live our life. We don't want someone to be above us, to rule over us. We don't want a king. And uh, in Jesus' time, the leaders of the time, they were in charge. Did not appreciate someone trying to muscle in on their territory. They had a religious system that worked for them. They didn't need this Messiah King. Now there's something in us that, that sees the claims of Christ and reject it. I think we would see more rejection in our culture if we pressed on people the claims of Christ. We would see it more visibly, more tangibly. They rejected him. He experienced physical suffering. He experienced the deprivations of being a refugee, of being homeless. It's quite a thing, that, isn't it? As you see the images of these refugees trying to flee from Syria, there was a time when Jesus looked just like that. As you see people sleeping rough on the streets, there was a time when Jesus looked just like that, homeless, without a place to lay his head. He knew what it was to be hungry, to be thirsty, to be so tired that he could fall asleep on a boat in a raging storm. During the life of Jesus, we read of moments where he was overcome by sorrow of seeing the consequences of, of a sinful, rebellious world. Standing by the graveside of Lazarus, he wept. His sorrow over Jerusalem as he yearned and says, if only you'd known this day of my coming to you. But it was at Gethsemane, wasn't it, that he experienced the greatest mental torment, the anguish as he contemplated the events of his arrest, beatings and crucifixion. But more than that, he staggered at the greater anguish of anticipating God's punishment for sin. Described as that cup of wrath. If there's any other way, would you take this cup away from me? Jesus cries out in utter anguish. Yet not my will, but your will be done. He set himself to drink that cup of God's wrath down to its bitter dregs. It's hard to look into the face of someone who is really suffering and experiencing pain, isn't it? I can barely watch the news reports, as I've already said to you in the past, of, of the people in Syria, just to see the agony of folk in the hospital, coping with the bombs and the wounds and the pain. And it's just, it's so tempting just to switch off, turn over, 
It's, it's unbearable to look at. And such would be the painful experience of this servant. That's how people would feel about him. They would despise him. They would reject him. How can this be the Messiah King? That's why the message of the cross seems so unbelievable to people. That such an ordinary, rejected, suffering person crucified by the Romans, how can this be the mighty arm of the Lord's? This is how God is, is personally acting in history to save and rescue people and to reconcile a broken world through this despised man of sorrows? Really? Let's be honest. Most people in Edinburgh today haven't got a clue what Easter is about. It's about bunnies and chocolates. And it's met with total incomprehension. In a sense, the answer to the question of verse 1 is no one who has believed our message. No one. And yet, in these verses, there is a group of people who've experienced a remarkable change. Did you notice it? Look at verse 3. We held him in low esteem, it says at the very end. Here's a group of people who, who once looked at him and said, not impressed. He's not, the, he's not the one. And yet verse 1, the question, who has believed our message? This group that once held him in low esteem are now proclaiming the message that this really is the arm of the Lord. This is the Lord's servant. This is the Messiah King. This is how God is going to achieve his salvation in the world. A salvation achieved through his suffering and death. Now, how does this change come about? Well, there is a revealer behind every believer. Look at verse 1 again. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? As we read earlier from 1 Corinthians chapter 1. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of, the, of God. This message of the cross in all its pain and rejection, its humiliation and its suffering is the power of God that saves us. Now, you know, if Bear Grylls wants to come and do a talk, I'd love it. I think people would come along just to listen just because they, they like Bear grills. But, you know, the thing that would change people's lives is not the, the charisma of his personality. It would only be this if he points to this suffering Savior whose death on a cross is the means of our eternal salvation. It's something that we struggle to wrap our heads around. It's something that naturally uh, doesn't make sense and yet this is the very means that God is saving people in the world through the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is God who, who reveals this to us, who opens our eyes to see that this man of sorrows is the glorious Savior. Now is that not the testimony of every Christian here? I mean there was a time when you didn't think 
much about Jesus. You didn't know what the fuss was about. And then a moment came when you understood your sin. When you saw the suffering of Christ on the cross was for you. That Jesus paid the price for your sin. And you repented of your sin and you received Jesus Christ as your saviour. Now, how did this come about? Is it because you're, you're smarter than other people? Is it because of some achievement on your part? No, it's not. It's fascinating to me that people can hear the gospel many, many times and it makes no impression upon them. And then there's that one moment where it strikes them. It hits home and they see it as, for the very first time, as we sang in a song earlier, God was speaking just to them. It was for you that he was despised and rejected. He was a man of sorrows for you. You see, we're all blind. We're not going to see it. We're all dead to the gospel apart from this amazing grace of God who opens blind eyes to see the glory of his Son. God's Holy Spirit applying the cross work of Christ, enabling us to turn from our sins and to trust Jesus as our Savior. The arm of the Lord is revealed to us. Now I want to just think about some applications of, this, of these verses to us. Four of them. Firstly, God loves you. We should never tire of this simple point. He demonstrates that today, that he loves you by the events of the cross of Christ. We were thinking about this in the Women's Morning Fellowship on Thursday morning. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. The Lord Jesus knew what the cost would be. And he chose the cross for you. And he still bears the scars of his victory in heaven. Don't doubt it. He loves you. If you're trusting him today, know that that is true. Second point of application, God understands. My Christian friends, perhaps you're experiencing rejection from your family. Rejection from people that you long to impress. Notice here, you are following a Savior who knows what it is to be rejected, to be despised. I think we're at a tipping point in the UK. Christianity used to look like uh, a really good thing and the establishment. It's what respectable people did. They went to church. But those days are at an end. The days are coming when to be a Christian and to follow Christ and to to believe what the Bible has to say means that we're going to be despised. Despised for what we think. And actually that's how it's been for most of of the history of the Christian church. We've just had a very unusual period of time in the UK, but we should prepare ourselves for this reality that if you want to be serious about following Christ, you will be despised and rejected. But in experiencing that, know this, you are only being like 
your Savior. Perhaps you're experiencing great sorrows in your life and and there are great temptations that are pulling you away from your commitment to Christ. Well, remember that your merciful and faithful high priest, Jesus Christ, himself suffered when he was tempted. And so he's able to help those who are being tempted. He was a man of suffering and familiar with pain. It is extraordinary. God understands. Thirdly, God cares. You see, when skeptics throw in our faces the problem of suffering as a proof that God does not exist, remember these verses. These verses, along with many others, reveal to us that God is not remote from us. God's not a crazy scientist doing terrible experiments on us in a lab. God chose to enter into a world of pain and suffering, and in Jesus Christ, he knows what it is to suffer. And at great personal cost, he has won a salvation that will one day transform the whole creation and end suffering altogether. Edward Chilito wrote a poem during the First World War called Jesus of the Scars, and this is the final verse of it. The other gods were strong, but thou wast weak. They rode, but thou didst stumble to a throne. But to our wounds, only God's wounds can speak. And not a God has wounds, but thou alone. God loves you. God understands. God cares. And fourthly, God reveals. Who has believed our message? How will people come to believe in Jesus? Well, the Apostle Paul quotes verse 1 of Isaiah 53 in Romans chapter 10, noting that people continue to reject and dismiss the good news. But our task is to continue sharing the message of the cross. Romans 10 verse 17 follows on from this quote and says this, Consequently, faith comes through hearing the message and the message is heard through the word about Christ. There was a, an advert in the Saturday magazine about how you could have beautiful feet by buying a wonderful product that would buff it up and do all sorts of strange things. But you know what? We can all have beautiful feet if we bring the good news with us. Believers who have experienced This saving grace need to tell others who've not yet heard. But as we share, we need to do so prayerfully, asking a gracious God to reveal himself as their savior. As we consider what it meant for Jesus to be this savior, The suffering and the hardship. This is not kind of a a depressing conversation. Because Christ's suffering is over. Salvation has been achieved. He was raised up. Lifted up. Is highly exalted. He will be the returning king. He's the king of glory. Salvation has been achieved. And so 
what are we to do now as we await for his return? Well, now is the time of proclaiming the message of repentance for the forgiveness of sins in the name of Jesus to all nations in prayerful dependence upon God. We've got such a message for a suffering world. Such an amazing message that will save and rescue them from eternal suffering and bring them safe home into eternal glory. Hallelujah. What a Savior.